This is Super Investors and the Art of Worldly Wisdom. I'm Jesse Felder. Object to the test! This episode is brought to you by The Felder Report. Each week I go through a ton of reading and research. Uh, and every week I take the five things I found most valuable during the previous week. I put them together in a Saturday morning email. If you're interested in receiving something like this, just go to thefelderreport.com. Right there on the homepage, click join now and you'll be good to go. My guest for this episode is Chris Cole. Now, if you haven't heard of Chris, he's one of the foremost thinkers and practitioners in the world of volatility trading. After beginning his career in Hollywood as a cinematographer, Chris took an interest in options trading, which eventually led to a job at Merrill Lynch. It was there he was able to explore the subject of risk further and in a professional capacity. And after personally profiting through employing his volatility strategies during the great financial crisis, Chris founded Artemis Capital Management in order to offer his services to institutional and hedge fund investors. In this episode, Chris discusses his personal evolution as a trader and hedge fund manager and also shares his unique insights into portfolio construction gleaned from an extensive study of market history his firm recently conducted. So please enjoy my conversation with Chris Cole. wonder why fund managers can't beat the S&P 500? Because they're sheep. And sheep get slaughtered. Chris Cole, welcome to the podcast. I'm super excited to have you here. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, no, I, I, the first thing I have to ask you is uh, most of the, I mean, the successful investors that I've studied um, really seem to deeply internalize the idea that they should focus on risk first and let the rewards kind of take care of themselves. Um, you've built an investment philosophy kind of around this idea. You, you've also seemed to embody this uh, kind of in a uh, outside of the markets, um, taking it as more of like a core life principle. Where did this respect for risk, uh, both professionally and personally, come from for you? Well, I think, uh, first of all, to, to your viewers who don't, uh, who aren't too familiar with my work, um, I, I'm a volatility trader. And what that means is that I'm going to be wrong nine out of 10 times. And then the idea being is the one out of 10 times that I'm correct, um, there should be enough nonlinear gains to, uh, to create alpha for, for my clients and myself. Um, and our strategy is very counter trend. Uh, so in, in that sense, I think, I think about risk uh, in terms of the transmission of volatility and, and nonlinearity. And a lot of that, a lot of that philosophy boils down to how one chooses to live life and how one can apply some of those same lessons that are, I think, very important in volatility trading uh, to life. Um, I think the, uh, you know, one of the, one of the concepts that I, that I put out there in some of my papers is that uh, volatility can never be destroyed. It can only be transmuted in shape and form. So this mainstream view that central banks have somehow suppressed tail risk, uh, this runs, I think, quite counter to common sense. Uh, I believe that what they've done is they've taken asset returns from the future and brought them to the present, or they've taken tail risk from the present and shifted them to the future. Or what you've done is you've taken private risk and you've shifted that out into public risk. So it's showing up in ways like the rise of populism. Um, so in this sense, a lot of times in life, you can't destroy, you have to embrace volatility. And 
when you're when you're trading and actually buying options, what you're seeking to do is find smart ways to take that risk with a limited risk profile and profit from the nonlinearity. And you can apply that same principle in life a lot of the time. And, and how would you, I mean, I, I guess from your own personal experience, how would you, where did the metaphor in life, I guess, where, where is that for you? Well, this, this concept that, uh, for example, I, I think one of the classic metaphors is the idea of the sequoia trees and that uh, the seeds will actually, uh, the, the seeds will actually open up when uh, they sense fire. So in, in act, the idea that the trees actually need uh, the, the, the trees actually need to have brush fires in order to create the conditions that allow new trees to rise up from the ashes. This is, this is the idea of embracing volatility. This idea that um, the treatment of addiction, for example, requires kind of a brutal assessment of one's uh, of the reality of one's situation and to embrace volatility so that you can you can cure yourself of any addiction. Um, marriage therapists, for example, observe, observe that the couples that are at the biggest risk of a divorce are the ones that aren't fighting, the ones that are suppressing. Um, the ones that are fighting are actually at least communicating and have a shot. So this this idea or that. Rangers, for example, in nature will, will do controlled blasts uh, for, for avalanches. This idea that you need this process of creating uh, volatility, in essence, and embracing some volatility to, to create a better uh, uh, outcome in a variety of different disciplines. And I, I've noticed this in nature, and that's something that's embraced in nature, but it's also something that, that, that is embraced in the trading philosophy uh, of anyone who's a successful long volatility trader, or for that matter, anyone who's a successful global macro trader, uh, bears many of these same philosophies of trying to understand when a system is near a breaking point and how volatility is being transmuted through that system in, in, in seeking to play that breakout of it. Yeah, and I guess that's one of the things I really appreciate about uh, about your work is it's not just accepting the idea of risk, it's actually embracing risk as as an equal and opposite of, of you know, the good times uh, in the markets. It seems like you, you mentioned central banks are intent on, you know, trying to uh, eliminate risk. And it seems like a lot of investors position themselves so that they, you know, hope that risk never materializes. And so to just accept that risk is a healthy, uh, you know, part of this balance uh, in markets and nature is, is something that... Uh, is I think super valuable, and you do a great job of of, of kind of, I guess, uh, elucidating that that for your readers. Um, let's so let's let's get into kind of more of your investment philosophy and some of this volatility stuff. How did you first become interested in finance? So I first began interested in finance. I think so. My background, and we can cover this in maybe some of the other questions, but um, I originally had a background in cinematography and art, and I began uh, trading. Out of just pure intellectual interest in the in the late 1990s, um, and then from there, I decided uh, during that dot com recession to just for fun do my CFA. Um, I was just fascinated. All of a sudden, things that didn't make sense in the world, I, I, I it made sense through the lens of economics, through the lens of investing. And uh, I just became just intellectually fascinated a bit with it, and particularly intellectually fascinated by options trading. The idea of 
this idea of being able to buy optionality, have a limited loss profile, unlimited gains, this exposure to change. And I began devouring uh, some of the early options uh, uh, texts, uh, work by Macmillan and Nadenberg, some of the classic kind of entry-level texts that people use. Um, And then it was through uh, two levels of the CFA that I actually ended up getting a job offer uh, from Merrill Lynch. And I was, I think, the only analyst in my class uh, going into to bond structuring. Uh, I was the only analyst in my class with a with an art degree and a CFA, <laughs> which is a very weird combination. Yeah. So. <laughs> well, you know that, that that's that's fascinating to me too because I, you know, uh, I've talked with so many different people about this, uh, and and Charlie Munger's talked about it, bringing other, um, I guess, kind of mental models to uh, to finance adds a unique uh, perspective. Was there something from you know filmmaking uh, that that you think adds to uh, you know to your I, I guess unique perspectives in the markets? Well, I, I studied cinematography, and for those who don't know what cinematography is, that's actually the 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 idea of uh, selecting the film stock, controlling the lighting, uh, controlling the the positioning and the movement of camera, how that worked with mise en scene, um, all of these all of these different factors uh, that are very very technical. So cinematography is a combination of art and it's a combination of science. A good cinematographer has to have some, some level of mathematical aptitude. And the way I looked at lighting a scene and moving a camera through a scene is very much the way that I looked, looked at investing. Whereas um, I would take different light meter readings across a scene and create a statistical distribution of the entire range of different light points and then understood how how the tails or the middle of that distribution would be effective in telling a story and how the distribution of those light points uh, worked with different uh, with different uh, film stocks. So I think in many ways, the way that I approached cinematography, it, it was a very statistic, statistics driven framework that actually could be in essence, transmuted onto options trading. Uh, because obviously as an options trader, what you're trying to actually understand is, you know, what is the probability distribution of underlying asset? And then how does that probability distribution align um, align with what's being priced in the market? Uh, I was just, you know, in cinematography doing the same thing with light and film stock. Wow. I mean, that's, that's just really cool to hear because, you know, that marriage of science and art, it just it reminds me of all the great, you know, hedge fund traders of the last 40 years, right? You have to have that, that basis in science, that basis in, um, you know, statistics, information, whatever it is that is the foundation. Then in applying it, you have to use some art, right, to, 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 make, it, to make it work. Yeah, um, it's an art form. Absolutely. So how did you go from studying options to... Uh, I guess the lead into the financial crisis and seeing an opportunity there. Well, so I think like with most people who start in this industry, um, I found myself initially attracted to value investing. Um, And, but looking at it, trying to understand and, and look at the way value versus momentum and all these different other strategies worked, I really came to realize that, it, they're really just two, are two different types of traits. There's mean reversion and there's trend. And to that point, I think 
volatility to me became the only asset class that exists. I mean, people talk about, I've always said this, they say, well, uh, is volatility an asset class? I say, well, it's the only asset class because you have strategies that are short volatility and those are strat- uh, short volatility strategy is profiting from mean reversion. It's profiting from uh, the it's profiting from mean reversion. It's profiting from the expectation of stability or continued stability in the market. And whether or not you're shorting an option or not, uh, different strategies have that return profile, including value investing. You, you have this expectation that something will mean to mean revert to some intrinsic value. And then you have strategies that are long volatility uh, that are, in effect, playing uh, breakouts that, that profit from change. Uh, that could be buying options. It could be uh, global macro investing, someone who's making uh, uh, assessments on whether some regime change is going to occur in a currency or in a rate, um, or it could include strategies like commodity trend. And so when I began simplifying all of these ideas, that the whole world of investing actually simplified down to two basic strategies, long and short volatility, which actually echoes the way most people live their lives – most people tend to tend to follow one one or the other of those philosophies in their everyday life. Um, that eventually kind of led me into uh, pursuing interests in uh, in rate derivatives, and and I was at I was at Merrill at that time structuring rate derivatives, and I began experimenting uh, with my own volatility trading strategies on the side. And and so those volatility strategies were looking at. Uh, short vol versus long vol, and uh, and and the, the like the risk return profile through periods of time is that is that it? Yeah, I think that was that's a big thing where I would I would look at uh, for example, and I I've always been doing this. I think my most recent investment letter uh, or research paper really really shows this. But instead of looking at just ten years or five years or three years of history, let's look at a hundred years of history. And let's understand, you know, what are the drivers that could cause this, what appears to be a steady state stable regime to suddenly shift radically in a different direction. And uh, so I, I love the fact that I love the fact in investing where you're able to combine the this awareness of the world, which is incredibly important. You're, you have to be a constant student of the world with this mathematical, uh, with this acumen in mathematics and being able to structure and also price derivatives. It's extremely important, um, especially in, 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 in the world that I'm in. And then combine that with this, this very strong uh, study of history and, uh, and the artistry of being creative to understand what, you know, what, what might cause the regime that we're in today to shift or how might the price movement, uh, how the how the price movement that we have in this asset might 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 change, you know, comparative to where it's been in history? Yeah, it's interesting to me from the standpoint. To, first of all, to hear that you were first intrigued by value investing. I mean, there's a contrarian streak there, uh, especially these days for value investors. You have to be contrarian oh, yeah. to be a value investor today. But um, there had to be something in there in terms of your contrarian bent that for me, it's always amazing to look back through different market cycles and find that there are always these strategies that come up that are guaranteed to fail. Um, but people embrace them in mass anyways. Uh, you know, and, and the one I'm thinking of is, you know, just selling naked put options. It seems like during every, you know, long, strong bull market that this, this type of trade becomes very popular. Was there something about 
the fact that these trades were becoming popular um, in in a whole in a bunch of different ways, uh, manifesting in a bunch of different areas, um, that intrigued you to more of a long vol type of uh, type of uh, I guess uh, strategy. Yeah, I think that's I think that's also that's also something that goes into someone's personality a bit. Um, I, I think it is very difficult to be a long ball investor psychologically because you're going to lose more than you win. And, and so to that effect, you have to be willing to uh, stick with your game plan, understand what that game plan is, uh, understand why it works statistically and stick with it, even though you might be wrong eight out of 10 times, nine out of 10 times. And then when you have that one out of 10 time uh, breakout that pays for all the losses. And we are currently in one of the longest periods of underperformance of volatility and underperformance of value stocks uh, in history. And that, that really is, I think, driven by a, a number of different factors. But that makes it even more difficult because uh, there is this FOMO effect that most people have. So your average value investor and your average um, long volatility investor obviously is not influenced by that fear of missing out. Uh, maybe they might be too influenced by being an iconoclast and desire to be that iconoclast. That's the danger, right? You don't want to be the iconoclast that never makes money. Um, but, I, but I think naturally you have to be comfortable in your own skin and you have to be comfortable uh, being wrong many, many times and being told you're wrong until you're right. Um, it also makes it a difficult business model for people to follow as well. And it's underappreciated. Yeah, I mean, obviously, it's you know, it seems like um, you know, I was I was kind of discussing some of these shortfall strategies. It's it's not hard to to raise money for those when you show one, two, three years of of stellar performance, and it's a lot easier to kind of uh, I the way I, I look at it is make hay while the sun's shining, and you don't really care about blowing up three, four, five years from now if you can make a ton of money in the short run. Seems like a, a common philosophy on Wall Street. So the opposite of that like you said, is, is a very difficult thing for, for most people to, to tolerate. Um, and I just come back to what is it in your personality that allows you to tolerate this? <laughs> yeah, it's maybe a masochism, I suppose. I don't know. <laughs> I, I'm not totally sure. but <laughs> um, I mean, I'm asking it from a, from a standpoint of, uh, of empathy or sympathy because I'm a you know, value investor who's you know, gone through a long period of, of, uh, of this as well. So it's, you know, it, it, what is it about about people like us? It, maybe it's just an unanswerable question. Yeah, I, I do think it is It is something in someone's makeup. Um, and to, to the point where it's, it's a big issue for hiring traders. Um, if someone feels the need to be right more a, a lot, then it, they have trouble following these strategies. Psychologically, they have trouble following these strategies. Um, and so it's, it's a lot, it's, it's like it's psychologically seductive to be in the opposite trade where you're shorting the put options year after year after year, because you, you are right many more times than you're wrong. And you make money every day, just like XIV, you make money every single day until the day you lose everything. But it's um, psychologically, it's very appealing to, to have that, have that return profile. Um, And I think a lot of people uh, like to be right and they feel the need to be right. Um, and that, that makes, uh, that makes volatility and value a difficult emotional strategy to follow. 
Right. Yeah. I, yeah, I love this parallel between, um, long vol and value because for me, what really drew me to the, to the value kind of investing methodology was the margin of safety concept, which is really a risk, you know, uh, risk averse type of way to, to look at markets. And so, um, you know, it, it just makes, it makes a lot of sense to me. To, to get back to, uh, this, this time frame, you know, uh, kind of mid 2000s though, um, you were at Merrill, you're looking at different vol strategies, you're testing on your own. Um, I guess what was it that you found, um, that really helped you, uh, be so successful during the crisis of 2008? Well, there were, I think there were two things. There were two things that I think were really important. And, uh, uh, for those that, that didn't know Artemis, Artemis was founded off of the money I made. Uh, trading systematically through 2008. Um, the period between 2007 to 2009 was a very, very, very good period for my strategies, as many people would imagine. Um, and that gave me enough money to go start my own firm. But uh, what was it that I saw leading into 08? Um, well, I, I think the first thing is that I, I did believe that we were in some sort of unsustainable bubble. And I was very much, I had a front row seat on Wall Street uh, observing the kind of problems that were occurring in the credit markets. And I always have understood that volatility and credit are brothers in risk. You, you don't generally have uh, volatility without credit stress. Uh, oftentimes there's a, I talk about this Ouroboros cycle where there's a, there's a, a, a good growth in the economy. You have some technology, demographics, uh, and then there's solid fundamental economic growth. And that lasts for a while. Then what occurs is when that economic growth is 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 no longer uh, being driven fundamentally, uh, but people want to keep the uh, asset boom going, they turn to debt creation until so much debt uh, piles up that eventually it can't be serviced, and then you have a, a leveraged collapse either into uh, in, either into fiat default or into a deflationary crisis. So I I knew that what was occurring was unsustainable. But that's not enough because it doesn't tell you the timing. The other thing I think I knew, which was really important, is I studied volatility going back to the Great Depression. I actually graphed. At the time, it was the, the Dow. But I, I calculated the realized volatility of the Dow Jones Industrial Average going all the way back to the early 1900s. So I understood that in a, de a deflationary crisis, you could have volatility go higher for much longer than most people were giving it credit for. And that was a key insight because at the time, I don't think many people realized this, but it's very similar to way, the way it is today. Every time the VIX went up to 30 in 2007, the, the logic was sell it, sell vol. I mean, you can't sell the VIX, but sell volatility anytime the VIX hits 30 was the, the modus operandi on Wall Street at that time. No one ever imagined that you could get extended volatility for a long period of time. But looking back, I was like, boy, you know, in a in a in the wrong type of debt crisis, volatility can average over thirty five for a decade. And I had data, and I looked at that, and then I understood that that based on the way that volatility was being priced, that when vol went up to thirty, you could buy forward vol for as low as twenty three times, and um, that presented a tremendous opportunity to not only be able to press into volatility positions when um, on spikes, but also to do so at a, a margin of safety. And 
to be frank, we're, we currently see some of the same dynamics today. Those same factors are still in place today. Where now it's been 10 years, uh, we've had some of the uh, highest mean reversion on record. And the, the expectation that everyone has is that the market will always rebound from dips and that volatility will always be worthy of being sold anytime vol goes above 20. And, uh, and I think we're going to have a similar shakeout at some point in time. Uh, and that will surprise a lot of market players. And it's just about being patient uh, and being able to, to uh, control your risk until that point in time. Well, you make a good point, and I think how to think about this, that you know, central banks have managed to um, not destroy volatility, but push it out into the future at some point. And in the process, they've pulled forward returns uh, in equities and you know, uh, bonds and things. Um, so is that, is that kind of what you're thinking? Is that you know, they've been able to suppress it, but they haven't been able to, to, to I guess, uh, destroy it. That it, it, at some point, all this suppressed volatility is going to come back, uh, and these, the returns that they pulled forward are going to disappear. Yeah, I think I think there's there's ways that can occur other than a, a deflationary collapse, though. I mean, I think everyone has 2008 on their mind. Um, one of the ways that one of the ways it can occur is the rise of populism. I think people, I, I think central banks have to take responsibility for the fact that uh, the rising income inequality is a byproduct of of extraordinary monetary policy, and that is creating a lot of unknown unknowns and. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's fascinating today. I think one of the graphs that I'll put out there is um, you look at the, the, the gap between uh, corporate debt and credit card yields. So it's the highest level in history. So corporations are borrowing really, really at really low levels um, and some of the lowest levels uh, uh, based on option adjusted spreads. And they're able to they're using that that debt issuance to, in effect, buy back their own shares in a financial engineering strategy. Um, well, meanwhile, Main Street, the average consumer is is never been charged more on their credit card debt. So it's just a, an example of you know one rate driven example of, of why why uh, some of these policies, uh, although they're supporting asset prices, are not really filtering down to the median the median worker, and that's creating. Uh, a type of risk that um, is external to markets, but actually could threaten rule of law down the road. The other framework is that you could also have risk transmitted through fiat devaluation. If they go ahead and decide to do helicopter money and devalue the currency um, to pay for a variety of programs, that is also a form of volatility. I call it right tail volatility. Um, but is a form of volatility. And that's been done many, many times before, uh, whether it was the uh, 1932, 1934 gold devaluations, or whether, um, or whether you know, we look at 1971 Nixon shock. Um, they're all examples of, of, uh, of right tail risk driven by fiat devaluation as a response to having too much debt. Well, and those are very you know, closely related risks. I, I've, I've, um, suggested that it's, I mean, disingenuous at best for the Fed to say uh, we're going to create a wealth effect, but we're not playing any role in wealth inequality. Right? You can't have it both. Yeah. Have it both ways. Yeah. 
Uh, and so it, it, I think it makes a ton of sense that in the next recession, you'll see policies, uh, you know, po- like you said, politically driven uh, that go from supporting financial markets to supporting, you know, people directly uh, that, you know, just uh, goes along with what we're seeing in populist politics and whatnot. And so that to me seems like a, a pretty clear risk on the horizon. Um, to getting back specifically to, to the paper that you, you uh, recently published, um, you venture beyond the area of volatility uh, in the paper, uh, which is really interesting. And you look at asset classes over a hundred year time period. Um, one conclusion that you come to uh, in the paper is that recency bias is now a systemic risk. Can you explain that? Yeah, I, I think uh, so. My paper, the volatility of, uh, excuse me, the allegory of the hawk and serpent, it asks the question how do you, if you're given money, how, what asset allocation should you have to ensure that your children's children will be able to inherit that money in 100 years? What asset allocation should you use to ensure that wealth will not only uh, be sustained but also grow over a 100-year period? And um, I, to, to answer that question, I looked at a variety of different asset classes um, and recreated financial engineering strategies going back 100 years. And I came up with a new uh, asset allocation strategy that is actually quite counterintuitive uh, compared to what the average pension system is doing. And, um, and that asset allocation plan was actually not derived by my opinion or any kind of macro views. It was purely derived by actually uh, a portfolio optimization over 100 years looking at a variety of different strategies. And that effectively, that, that portfolio effectively says that what you should do is, is invest, of course, in stocks and bonds, but then you should find asset classes that are that are non-correlated and counter-trend to stocks and bonds. And that includes gold, uh, volatility, and commodity trend. And you should boldly size into these asset classes. And if you do this, you can attain a portfolio that not only protects and maintains wealth over 100 years, but, is cons- but will consistently perform through every market cycle. Every single market cycle, this portfolio consistently performs and outperforms the traditional 60-40 retirement portfolio or more complex portfolios like risk theory. Um, but it comes down to this, this concept. I, I call it the, uh, the law of cosmic duality. It's kind of a new agey name. But this idea that if you take – if you have a trend, if you're able to take that trend – and combine it with a counter-trend driver, you're able to actually uh, have more output with less volatility. And I give examples of this throughout throughout, uh, life. Uh, One example I love to use is of Dennis Rodman. Uh, Rodman was the lowest scoring inductee in the Basketball Hall of Fame. The guy uh, never averaged more than 11 points a game. So, and he could barely score outside of five feet. Yet, when you put Dennis Rodman on the court with a bunch of uh, excellent scorers, the offensive efficiency of his team increased, even though the opposing team didn't need to guard him. So every single time you put Rodman on the floor, even with mediocre scores, 
the team got better on offense and the wins over replacement value went up. And based on all of this advanced statistics, uh, Robin actually could be considered one of the 20 best players ever to play the game of basketball. So what was happening? Why, why did Rodman enhance the performance of his, the offensive performance of his teams, even though he couldn't score himself? It's because he was so good at rebounding the basketball. He was a sixth standard deviation rebounder away from the mean. He was so good at rebounding the basketball that every time his team missed, he created second, third, fourth chance opportunities for them to score. And so this is an example of you have a bunch of scorers who are the trend and you have Rodman who's a counter trend asset and combining the two actually enhances offense. And there's many other examples of this in life that we can point to. Um, but the, the same the same holds true in portfolio uh, analytics. If you have stocks, if you have stocks, a position in stocks and a position in private equity is much more powerful if it's combined with an allocation to long volatility that does well when markets struggle. Um, they counter they counteract one another. And it gives you an ability to have a better overall return and return per unit of volatility than you would otherwise. And this is actually this, the entire secret to a portfolio that, that outperforms over 100 years. I, I love the, uh, the Rodman metaphor because it makes, it makes so much sense. I'm, one of my favorite quotes, and this gets back to the first question I asked you, is, is a Paul Tudor Jones quote. He says, the most important rule of trading is to play great defense, not great offense. Don't focus on making money. Focus on protecting what you have. And so the way you're kind of doing that or recommending that people do that is put a, a significant allocation of your portfolio into defensive assets. And I think most investors would probably hear that and go, okay, great. Um, consumer staples, utilities, and bonds. Uh, I'm, I'm playing defense. Uh, you know, what, yeah. I guess what would you say to that? Yeah. So I, I think value stocks, for example, right, are uh, value stocks outperform momentum stocks at the end of a growth cycle. However, value will have drawdowns. You can't call value defensive right? Because it will draw down 40% like everything else. Sure. Um, it's more defensive than momentum per se, but um, at the same time, you will have that drawdown. It's still dependent on the business cycle, unless you're isolating it as a factor um, with, with uh, uh, moving your delta to zero. So in this sense, the, the secret here is that you don't want to be loading on a bunch of different assets with that are correlated with one another with excess returns. This is the problem that I think a lot of uh, a lot of the pension systems are going to find out the hard way. This idea that oh great, well what we have we have stock portfolio, we have our credit portfolio, and what we can do we can layer on some private equity, and we're getting a little bit of extra return from our private equity. Well, the problem is that in a recession, all of these asset classes decline at once. That's the problem. Um, so the power. The, the next phrase, someone might say, well, that's why I have bonds. Okay. Well, bonds are an excellent diversifier. I'm not taking that away from bonds. But, you know, with yields down at 1.5% right now, bonds are going to have to move to negative 3% to get the same uh, price appreciation that you got during the last crisis. So 
that is a the assumption that you can rely on bonds as your sole line of defense is, I, I think, particularly troublesome um, when rates are this low. And so this has not been a new problem. We've seen this problem over, you can see the same drivers over 100 years. So if one looks and actually allocates to things like long volatility, allocates to strategies like commodity trend, allocates to strategies like discretionary global macro, these strategies that can perform when when a basic stock portfolio, private equity portfolio uh, are not performing or when bonds are struggling, uh, that 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 is the secret to a balanced portfolio um, and not an opinion. Once again, one can read read our paper and we go in painstaking detail over 50 pages, understanding why this why this is a reality from a quantitative uh, and data driven standpoint. When I, I think this gets back to my question about recency bias, you know, too, is that you look at people think, well, I own stocks and bonds. I'm diversified. But what you point out in the paper, there are periods over that hundred year, you know, time frame where all financial assets do poorly at the same time for, an ex, for, for extended periods of time. So you think you're diversified by owning two different types of financial assets. If you don't own these other non-financial assets that perform well in these times of financial assets don't, then you're not truly diversified. That's right. Um, yeah. And I think the recency bias thing, and I, 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 I didn't quite answer that directly, but I think it's, a, it's worth pointing out in a big way. Um, by any measure of financial history, the last four decades were an unprecedented period of, of price appreciation. So if we look at the average financial advisor, average financial advisor is about 52 years old. They were a kindergartner during the stagflationary crisis of the 1970s. And then by the time they came of age, they grew up in, in this period of tremendous performance of stocks and bonds. But let's just put some numbers to this. 91% of the price appreciation for a classic equity bond portfolio over the last 90 years came from just 22 years between 1984 and 2007. Bonds returned 15 times what they returned over any other period in the cycle over 100 years. Um, you, there are some graphs on this in our, in our paper, but that period starting in 1984, you had a confluence of different factors coming online at the same time, which had a massive impact on rising asset prices, both stocks, bonds, real estate, you name it. You had 76 million baby boomers coming into, coming into the uh, workplace, earning excess money and beginning to save. So that's a huge wall of capital that hit markets in the 80s and continued and amplified in the 90s. On top of that, you had uh, interest rates peaked at 19% and began to drop so obviously, you know, when rates are at 19 percent, you've got a lot of leeway as rates go down, bonds go up, bond prices go up. That produces a framework that gives central banks tremendous ammunition to support a bull market and support asset prices. And as rates dropped and dropped and dropped, that supported stocks, that supported real estate and bond prices expanded dramatically. Then you had uh, lower taxation. We had taxes begin to drop with the Reagan administration. Um, and then you had a framework of globalization, which drove inflation lower and allowed rates to drop. So the last 40 years, 
The last four years is one of the most unprecedented periods of asset price appreciation. And the problem is that all of the pension systems and many investors expect that that period, the returns that they're able to get from that period are normalcy. That's the expectation. Uh, and that is a very dangerous expectation. The trillion-dollar question is, uh, is, is that error repeatable? And if it's not repeatable, then we've got a very big problem on our hands because the average U.S. pension system assumes a 7.25% return on plan assets. If we remove 1984 to 2007 from our data set, their portfolio drops down to about a 4 to 5% expected return on nominal basis. What that means is that already the 70 50 to 70% of pension systems that are currently underfunded uh, if we assume that their returns will be just 5% rather than 7.25% then the unfunded liability jumps to a level that is multiple times the bank bailout of of uh, 2008 we're talking an expansion of the unfunded liabilities from $1.4 trillion to, to up to $10 trillion. It, it is a big problem. And so recency bias is a, is a massive risk in markets today that I think many investors are not fully understanding because they are only using their lifetime and the return expectations from their lifetime as an assessment for their portfolio not looking back and saying, are those return estimates repeatable, um, especially in the context of 100 or 200 years worth of market history? And I'm not and I'm saying, boy, it it looks like it's going to be very difficult for the same factors that that drove uh, many of the factors that drove those asset prices are now working in reverse, uh, meaning uh, polarization um, uh, and uh, uh, globalization moving in reverse, baby boomers retiring and drawing money down from markets, poor demographics, uh, and rates being at, at, at multi-generational lows. And, and, you know, even the Fed, I think, put out a paper five, six years ago about demographics and suggesting that, you know, valuations are highly correlated to demographics and that, you know, but, uh, under this relationship, by the middle of this decade, we could see a P to E ratio on the on the market of about eight or nine, which would be far lower than it is today. So, yeah. I mean, clearly the Fed is aware of this issue. And, you know, we're talking about the possibilities of the next downturn of them having to swip, you know, switch to a more populist form of uh, type of stimulus. Um, I think I think in the paper you you, you suggest that you know they might be forced to bail out the pension system by printing money, and, and so this would be another uh, risk to um, uh, to these assumptions people are making. Yeah, I think that's that's exactly right. Like uh, what I fully expect to happen is that um, the the accounting for the pensions right now um, is they 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 exist in an imaginary world where this expectation that you could get seven point two five percent. Uh, that if that's the baseline, it, it's it's hard to understand how that how they achieve that over the next twenty years. And if that assumption isn't met, you've got a big funding problem. Uh, I think that, and if you've got a big funding problem in the pensions, and people aren't going to get 
the retirement guarantees that they imagined, right as the majority of the population enters retirement, by 2030, there'll be, there'll be two workers for every five beneficiaries. Uh, you've got a major social problem on your hands. So my, my full expectation is that central banks are going to have to go full money printing and will eventually be, be uh, that states and municipalities will be issuing pension obligation bonds that the uh, Fed will buy. And the monies from those pension obligation bonds, they'll buy those bonds at ultra low rates. And the monies from those pension obligation bonds will then flow in backstopping capital markets um, and ensuring that there will not be defaults in, in entitlement programs. Uh, of course, if they do this, along with other helicopter money provisions, this will lead to volatility. But it'll be a different volatility than, than what people imagine. Uh, the volatility that it will lead to will be um, right tail volatility, which you can profit from in an active vol strategy. But it, it will drive um, something I like to call autocorrelation in markets or trending in markets. One of the big technical factors that we've seen uh, in markets, everyone talks about low vol. What they don't talk about is the fact that there's no trend. Um, every single time the market drops, it rebounds the next day. We're even seeing that as we speak right now. Um, so that, that what we'll call trending or mean reversion in markets, uh, the mean reversion in the market is at multi-generational highs. And that's been because of the interplay between central banks, money printing, and, and uh, interest rates. Well, it wasn't always that case. Um, in other regimes, particularly, uh, particularly during a period of fiat devaluation, you have tremendous autocorrelation in prices, meaning that if, if yesterday was down, today is more likely to be down, the next day is likely to be down, or vice versa. Um, so that's a form of vol or a form of, of, of trend breakout that, that benefits strategies like volatility, commodity trend advisors, and gold. So I, I like to kind of point people out, and I talk about this with, with the analogy of a, of a hawk, the way out of these problems are either left tail, you have a default or, or left wing of the hawk, a default on the, the debt. That's kind of what we were experiencing in 2007, 2008. Or you have a fiat default. They default on money itself, which leads to stagflation and which leads to autocorrelation. And that results in the outperformance of things like commodity trend, right tail volatility in gold. And you need asset classes that profit during these periods of secular regime to be able to thrive over a hundred years. Um, what many, what many investment advisors are doing is they're just looking in the rear view mirror over the last 40 years, uh, putting all the money and all the eggs in the basket of secular growth assets like equity, private equity, equity linked instruments, credit and bonds. But bonds have been neutered by the fact that, that, that rates have dropped from nineteen to where they nineteen percent to where they are today. So let let's imagine you know people are reading your paper or listening to you in this podcast and they say, Chris, genius, thank you for sharing your wisdom. I agree with you one hundred percent. How can I? You talk about this sizable allocation, significant allocation to alternative assets like long vol, commodity trend, gold. Gold's an easy one, but how would uh, I guess? What's the best way for individual investors to try and apply this in their own portfolios in terms of like a long vol or commodity trend? Uh, I, first of all, uh, 
I wish I was a genius. I'm just, I'm just a kid from the Midwest who works hard. So, (laughs) yeah. So I think, um, uh, I think institutions, uh, I think institutions have an easier ability to do this, uh, from an execution standpoint, but they don't have the, the will to, because yeah, I've, you write a 50 page paper, you support that paper with a ton of data. It's very, very clear that institutions should be allocating 20% of their portfolio to equity linked, 20% to gold, 20% to things like volatility, 20% to things like bonds and 20% of things like commodity trend. But the idea of doing that is really difficult for an average institution to do. I mean, we've seen institutions in Texas Try to try to allocate, you know, just just three percent of their of their portfolio to something like gold, and how radical and difficult that is to get through. Um, how an individual obviously has power, but has less ability to execute many of these trades. Um, obviously, stocks are easy, gold is easy, um, and bonds are relatively easy. How does an average investor get allocations to uh, volatility and commodity trend? Um, there are various commodity trend uh, ETFs out there. One has to be very cautious on the pricing of that, um, uh, the fees on them. The other aspect is um, with uh, volatility. The ETFs that that are that most the average retail investor has access to are pretty bad. Um, I mean, I would never advise someone allocating to VXX as of as their volatility. It's just not not it's not a good product. So. Um, on one end, you have institutions that um, that have the full ability to execute this type of portfolio, but don't have the willpower institutionally to do it. Um, their problem is not an economic problem. Their problem is a social problem. And the other end of the spectrum, you have retail investors who may have the willpower to implement a portfolio like this, but the entire the financial service industry has failed these investors in providing them adequate diversification tools to protect their portfolios. And in this sense, this is maybe a little bit of a controversial thing to say. I mean, I run a hedge fund. It's a private investment vehicle. You have to be an accredited investor. Um, I can't take average investors in my hedge fund. That's unfortunate. But in many ways, I think the SEC and the regulatory authorities have an attempt to protect the industry have actually have actually uh, maybe done a disservice by making it extremely difficult for the average investor to gain access to counter trend strategies like commodity trend and volatility. And there, the, in fairness, there's not an easy solution to that. So in, in the paper, I think you just use kind of a simplified model for long vol rather than kind of an active long vol that, that, that you manage. Um, and if I remember correctly, it was basically like buying, you know, calls on an up 5% move, buying puts on a down 5% move. Is that right? Yeah. Like, so in the paper, we, we had to test uh, these different financial engineering strategies over 100 years. And so we gathered a lot of data from global financial data, and um, it required a lot of bottling. And we wanted, we ha- you have to make assumptions. Um, and we go in great lengths of detailing those assumptions in the appendix. Uh, tremendous lengths at it, but you have to make some assumptions. And our goal was to model the strategies, but to do it in such a way that requires the least amount of assumptions possible. Um, a highly simplified version of, of various strategies that, that may be complicated 
um, the way that they're implemented in a hedge fund, but we had to simplify them. So in my paper, the way that I, the way that I modeled um, being long ball exposure was um, any time over three months, you had the market drop um, 5% or gain 5%. On the gains, you would buy calls. On the drops, you would buy puts, and you just roll them. So that simplistic strategy um, actually performed very well as a long ball position. I would have actually carried positively for the greater part of 70 years. Um, of course, you could if, – if you were an individual investor and you have the ability to do these types of option strategies yourself, you could adopt um, a, a simplistic approach like that and maybe augment it with some pure insurance. You'd probably want some pure tail insurance, but then ramp that insurance up when when the trend begins moving in your favor. And that might be a way for a, for a sophisticated but retail investor to be able to implement the long ball exposure. Um, with commodity trend, we also just bought commodities when they move past their 50-day moving average. And um, so these are incredibly simple. And some people would sit back and say, well, wouldn't these strategies be armed out of the market? Um, and I, I, I think the thing I'd like to let people know is that, well, it, yes, okay, there is that, right? I wouldn't recommend running a hedge fund with those strategies today. Um, but what you're looking at is to capture secular regime shifts, so if we had, in the 1970s, Nixon delinked versus gold and commodities exploded, um, of course, gold went up and any, any basic trend-following strategy did very well during that period. Well, if you had helicopter money, um, if you had helicopter money uh, and there was just – they began to do uh, student loan forgiveness and began to have – Massive helicopter money for infrastructure projects and giving out money for people to buy basic goods, you'll have ask, you'll you'll have uh, commodity price inflation and even a basic strategy that plays off that commodity price trend could do well in that environment. Same with vol. Um, you know, in a deflationary collapse like two thousand eight or the nineteen thirties, um, a hyper simplistic strategy of just buying put options, even though that's not a great strategy most of the time performs in that period of secular change, uh, particularly incorporating some basic rules around it. Um, so I, I think the point at the end of the day is that you're not trying to run a hedge fund. Um, I'm trying to run a hedge fund, but but you're not trying to be the next um, uh, renaissance or AQR. You're just trying to provide some counter trend exposure to profit from uh, a, a period of secular change on either tail of the return distribution. And, and that, that can be accomplished if, if an investor or financial advisor is savvy enough to be able to do it. Of course, if they're accredited, then it makes sense to go to the actual hedge fund professionals um, and uh, look, at, look at reputable hedge funds in various indices like the CBOE, Eureka Hedge, Long Volatility Hedge Fund Index, or the HFRX, a systematic diversified uh, macro CTA index. Uh, yeah, it's, it's interesting to me. I think uh, I read something somewhere recently where Mark Spitznagel said the same thing about uh, these types of insurance type of a, a product for investor portfolios, and there really isn't anything for individual investors. Seems like there's a huge opportunity for me, or for 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 you know someone, not for, not for me. I don't I don't want to put out an ETF. 
But for someone to, uh, you know, create this, there might just not be the demand for it now. Obviously, with the way Wall Street works, there probably be the demand for it after it's already, uh, uh, you know, after the time has passed when you would have needed it. But that just seems how, I, like how it works. I'm glad you. I'm glad you brought that up because everyone seems to have this view that they can time these things. Right. And the, the truth at the end matter is it, it, the the smart the smart portfolio combines all these things ahead of time. It's part of the aggregate portfolio. It's not trying to time it. And this is the the, the real problem with portfolio mad, management is cultural and not economic. And so my strategy is most popular after the crisis. Right. Everyone wants insurance after the hurricane hits. Of course, it's it's not useful at that point in time. But there's other periods in time where um, – so after the last crisis, everyone wanted volatility and everyone wanted commodity trend in 2010, 2011. Well, you know, the worst of it was over. Well, if we go back across other periods in history, if we go back to 1946 – I want you to imagine you're an investor in 1946. Um, you've experienced two decades of declines in stocks and real estate. The consensus knowledge that you have now, everyone wants to be in real estate, private equity, and in stocks right now, and in the most highly momentum-driven stocks, the Teslas of the world. But if it was 1946, you were terrified of stocks. Um I mean, it had been 17 years of declines, and Japan hasn't rebounded from its its uh, bubble in 1989. If you bought the Japanese stock in real estate, uh, if you bought the Nikkei in 1989 in real estate, uh, you you would still be underwater today. Um, so it's important sometimes. It's very very difficult for an investor in a bull market to take gains from an asset class that's making money. And to put it in something that hasn't made money for a decade. And conversely, it's very hard after a period of massive declines to take money out of something that is a counter trend asset like vol and then allocate it into stocks. But it is that that's the emotional discipline you need to have a portfolio that thrives through every market cycle. And most individuals don't have that discipline. And most sadly, institutions don't have that discipline. And it's the institutional part that's a tragedy because they should. And the fact that they don't means that all of us are going to pay for that failing. Yeah, absolutely. And, and it, is, it is a shame because you look at you know, a paper like yours that historically and, and uh, statistically makes a, uh, in my mind, an irrefutable case for these types of allocations and still – they don't want to do them because of career risk or, or what have you. But um, I, I, I've really appreciated your time, Chris. I got one more question for you. Uh, you have shared a couple of uh, metaphors with us uh, during this conversation so far. And that's one thing that really stands out to me uh, about your writing is your use, use of these unique metaphors. Um, is that more a function of your education or does it reflect your current hobbies and interests outside of the markets? Where, where, do, where does this kind of unique perspective come from? You know, I've, so I've always been, we talked a little bit about in the beginning of the program about how um, I think statistically, but I also think visually. So um, I, uh, to me, to me, I start with a metaphor in mind. I can actually have uh, th these ideas, these visual metaphors for different difficult to understand concepts just, just kind of automatically pop into my mind. 
and it becomes a, an easier way to talk about these complex subject matters. Um, I think, for example, you know, we can talk all day and all night about um, dealer gamma and the fact that the volatility suppression and the fact that uh, there's self-reflexivity in markets driven by the fact that volatility is a, is a input uh, for risk and also a source of, of yield. But it's much easier for me to uh, show a picture of a snake eating its own tail, uh, the Ouroboros, as an example of that. Um, I think people understand that that the visual metaphor of a snake self-cannibalizing itself and why that's relevant to short volatility and why it's relevant to something like uh, corporate share buybacks. And I think it's just a function, my use of metaphor, I think it's just a function of the way that I think um, and how it's, it's enjoyable to kind of combine these uh, disparate disciplines uh, uh, in, in, in terms of uh, uh, visual iconography and mathematics. Um, and also the fact that I just enjoy reading a lot and I, I read a lot of uh, uh, different, uh, different things and draw inspiration from, from many uh, texts and movies and, uh, and novels that, that, are, that are outside of pure finance. Yeah. Well, I guess that's a good point. I guess it really could only come from a cinematographer turned volatility trader. <laughs> well, you know, it's, I mean, it's funny. I, the, the vision um, – so I, I think there wouldn't be an Artemis if there wasn't uh, – if I hadn't read Alan Moore's The Watchmen, for example. Um, mm -hmm. the original graphic novel. And what I loved about The Watchmen is the fact that people imagined, the fact that people could imagine something being possible made it possible. And that, that led me to think that like the only reason that we, the only reason that keeping the edifice of credit markets up is because people believe in the infallibility of banks at, at that time. I mean, we're talking 2006, 2007. There was this belief that true belief that the banks couldn't go under. Um, and I think people knew it rationally, but they didn't know it experientially. And when they began to feel that experientially, all of a sudden it shifted their view on what could happen. And that, that materialized in terms of markets. And I, I don't think I would have grasped that concept oddly enough. I didn't get that idea from a financial textbook. I got that idea from Alan Moore, who's a graphic novelist. Um, and, and that's why, you know, maybe having inspiration from, uh, from a variety of different, I mean, I, you know, I was simultaneously reading Alan Moore and then, you know, and then you're also reading guys like, you know, Jim Gatherall and, uh, Emmanuel Derman, um, who are doing, you know, local volatility surfaces. So it, <laughs> you know, it, it's, it's combining these different things together with it, that, that, it's the intersection of art and science, like you said before. Exactly. Um, yeah. So is, is there anything you're reading today that you would want to recommend? Uh, you know, it's interesting. I'm embarrassed to say, but uh, I haven't – I actually have not finished Shantaram, and I've, I've been reading that, uh, and it's been fantastic. So that's an incredible, incredible book. Um, okay. I'll put and uh, I've – it's been recommended to me. It's a very long book, and that's – I'm just immersed in it right now, about halfway through it. 
Interesting. I'll put a, uh, a link to, uh, to the book in the, uh, the, the post for this show. But Chris, thank you so much for taking the time to do this. That was super valuable, and I'm just grateful to you for, uh, for taking the time. Oh, it's a blast. It's my pleasure to be on, and it's, it's wonderful to connect because I, I think we've been admirers from afar. So uh, it's, it's really fun to have the opportunity with you today. And that does it for another episode of Super Investors and the Art of Worldly Wisdom. As always, you can find notes and links related to this episode at thefelderreport.com. Thank you for listening, and until next time, buy low, sell high. Man looks in the abyss. There's nothing staring back at him. At that moment, man finds his character. And that is what keeps him out of the abyss.